you can't heal a body you hate. Hey everyone, Emily Abadi here. You are listening to another installment of Hurdle Moment from Hurdle, a wellness-focused podcast where I connect with everyone from your favorite athletes to top experts and industry CEOs about their highest highs, toughest moments, and everything in between. We all go through hurdles in life, and my goal through these discussions is to empower you to better navigate yours and move with intention so that you can stride toward your own big potential and, of course, have some fun along the way. For today's episode, I am chatting with Dr. Will Cole. He's a leading functional medicine expert who consults people around the world via webcam, having started one of the first functional medicine telehealth centers in the world. Named one of the top 50 functional and integrative doctors in the nation, Dr. Cole specializes in clinically investigating underlying factors of chronic disease and customizing a functional medicine approach for thyroid issues, autoimmune conditions, hormone imbalances, digestive disorders, and brain problems. Now, he's also the host of the popular podcast, The Art of Being Well, and an author. He's got a new book coming out this month, and it is all about exactly what we are here to chat about today. And that is your gut. The book is called Gut Feelings. I will link to it in the show notes so that you can pre-order it, which I can almost guarantee is something that you will be doing once you listen to this conversation. Dr. Cole is a wealth of knowledge. He gives us the lowdown on everything from good for you foods that can help your gut, all the info we need on the brain-gut connection, and a large part of our conversation centers around the term he coined called shameflammation. Now, shameflammation can be the reason for chronic health conditions such as autoimmune disorders, leaky gut, IBS, and other GI disorders. Now, the good news is that it is possible to heal the connection between the physical and mental with good food and somatic practices that support a healthy gut and brain. And that is exactly what Dr. Cole and I get into today. Again, jam-packed episode. So grateful for Dr. Cole's expertise. And a reminder, I will link his new book, Gut Feelings, in the show notes. If you aren't doing so yet, make sure you follow Hurdle over on social media, over at Hurdle Podcast. I am over at Emily Abadi in Los Angeles. I am coming for you. The link right now is live for our runner safety conversation I'm going to be hosting next week on Wednesday, March 15th in Venice. If you are local, I would absolutely love to see you there. If you're not yet subscribed to the weekly Hurdle newsletter, what you're waiting for? The link to subscribe, it's absolutely free, is in the show notes. That's it for now. With that, let's get to it. Let's get to hurdling. Today, I'm sitting down with Dr. Will Cole. He's a New York Times bestselling author. He's also a leading functional medicine expert. How are you doing today? My goodness. Thanks so much for having me. I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I'm in between consulting patients and I'm, I'm happy to be here with you. It always amazes me. Like I feel as though, not to compare here, but I feel as though I don't have time in the day. And then I sit down with an expert like you and you're like, I was just like helping people make very important life decisions. 
consult with their health. And now I'm making time to do this podcast. Like <laughs> nothing going on really. <laughs> yeah, I've been doing it for 13 years, so I'm used to the the yin and yang of it. I love it. it it's like I it's like the rhythm of my day. But yeah, it definitely holds space for some heavy stuff sometimes. But it's certainly it's a sacred responsibility for me. It kind of lights me up to really figure out difficult, complex problems. So yeah, it's so normal for me. I don't even think about it. But maybe to the outside world, it is quite strange. <laughs> so you have been doing this for a good amount of time. You're also a podcaster yourself. You have a show called The Art of Being Well. Talk to me a little bit about what it's been like to strengthen that muscle, to be having these conversations out of what is your office and now behind the microphone. Yeah. So I think I've been doing telehealth for 13 years. So I'm used to talking when you're not in the same room with somebody. So there's a different level of like holding space and reading the room proverbially and the resonance of it, I guess, of talking to somebody. And I, I think my consultation skills really lends itself to conversations for people that aren't patients, right? Because you're, you're being a I have to be a clinical investigator. So I have to ask questions. I have to like dig deeper. I have to like read between the lines sometime and know when to give and take and listen and speak. So I think that that is a skill set that's honed in over 13 plus years talking to thousands of people, uh, off, you know, off of people watching it because <laughs> it's all patient confidentiality stuff. But, uh, you know, I think the, that's, the podcast is so easy for me because of that. We're actually talking about fun stuff, fascinating stuff, science stuff, health stuff, wellness stuff, life stuff. Before my podcast, The Art of Being Well, I hosted a podcast called Goop Fellas, which was Goop's, which is Gwyneth Paltrow's company. Their first spinoff podcast was called Goop Fellas, which was like, it, it, we did that for about a year or so as like a special one-off podcast. And so I, I, this is The Art of Being Well is technically my second podcast. Okay. Okay. So you've been doing all of this for a minute is what I'm gathering here. And you also know the benefit of listening, right? Because for you, it's so critical to listen to your patients so that you can fully understand what they're going through and then you can execute on your skill set. So really it does all kind of go hand in hand together. It does. It does. Basically what I'm saying is every podcaster, if they're good at it, they don't know they could really do a consultation really well if they're a good listener. <laughs> you might need a little bit of education. Yes. To yeah. Do it's a little bit more than that. Little bit <laughs> so more talk that. to us a little bit about your background then before we dive into what I'd love to focus on here today, talking about the gut, referencing your upcoming book, Gut Feelings, Healing the Shame-Fueled Relationship Between What You Eat and How You Feel. So before we get into the gut and this book and all the excitement, talk to us a little bit about what made you want to get into the field of medicine. Yeah. So I was, I guess in hindsight, a really weird kid. I, I <laughs> My first job was at finish line at the mall. And I used to sell like tennis shoes as a 16 year old. And I'd use my paycheck to go to the food, the health food store and buy the latest superfood I'd read about the latest like supplement herb that I, I read about. And I was biohacking before biohacking was a thing. And I just was a weird kid. I'd pack my lunches with, with like bell peppers and just like eat whole bell peppers as my lunch. Not what other teenagers are doing. And I realized that in hindsight that, wow, like that is strange. But I think that formed a lot of, those are formative times in our life, right? And I, I really was just a passionate about researching. And if you know anything about the Enneagram personality 
thing type. It's I'm an Enneagram five, which is a researcher, and that served me well with my job and just kind of like just double down on things that I'm passionate about. And the that evolved into me wanting to be formally trained in this. So I went to an integrative medicine school called Southern California University of Health Sciences outside of LA and just learned all about clinical nutrition and functional medicine and being trained there formally. And I graduated knowing I wanted to be really focused in functional medicine. And yeah, the rest is what I've been doing for the past 13 years, my day job. We started a a telehealth center 13 years ago. It's the first really in the world in functional medicine, but we didn't have the language for functional medicine back then. We would call it, we called it a a virtual functional medicine center. That's in my mind how I described in words what we were doing. Then telehealth became a thing later on in life. I said, oh, that's what I've been doing all this time. So it's just people in different states and countries that needed access to this exciting field of healthcare. Like how do we figure out what's going on? And functional medicines, the the goal of what we do is really get to the root cause, but in an evidence-based way. So we want want to run more comprehensive labs. We want to look at beyond the surface stuff. And ultimately it's predicated on bio-individuality. We're all different and there's not going to be this cookie cutter, one size fits all approach to getting well. And it's typically a confluence of factors and a confluence of tools that will get somebody better. So it is, um, that's kind of in a nutshell how I got to where I'm at and and how we do things in functional medicine. Yeah. And uh, God, there's so many people listening to this right now who cannot even think about or imagine what the last few years specifically would have been like without telehealth as a practitioner within that space. How has maybe your viewpoint or what you've had to navigate over the last few years informed you on where we go now? For me, you know, a lot of my colleagues, they had to pivot pretty quickly, right? Over when you're talking about 2020 and beyond, you know, years later now, it's like they had to figure things out overnight. How do we get, do our, what we do in a, in a tech way? Um, you know, I just, it was, it was a blessing for us in the sense that we had always been doing it. So our day, we didn't change. I know that we are so blessed and privileged. Like so many people's lives changed when it came to their job and their life and how they did things. 2020 and beyond, other than me not traveling for work, because I would travel to speak at different things. That's the only thing that changed. My day job literally changed. Like I have a long standing, I have a long term relationship with Zoom. Like Zoom has been my friend for a long time. And like 2020 came, I'm like, hey, I've always been on Zoom. So it's, uh, that's kind of, where does it go from here? I think what I really loved about the silver lining in such a devastating time in human history, I think was people learning that we could reimagine how we did things and how we used to do things wasn't always the most efficient, how we were doing things wasn't the most effective always. And people like thought they had to go drive to the gym and wait in traffic and park and go in. And it's like, Oh no, how can we move our bodies in our homes? Like how can we be effective and be more efficient? Or like with a, with a doctor, like, can we, we can do what we've always done here, but people now realize, oh, it's a thing. Like telehealth is a thing. I can, I can go and see my doctor with, in my pajamas at eight o'clock in the morning while I'm sipping coffee. And that's not a bad thing. That's a better use of your time thing. And actually in my way that we model things in functional medicine, it's very more immersive, right? It's not this, it's like having a doctor in your own living room because we're there with everybody because we have a more of a concierge 
telehealth model. Right. You know, and the other thing that I want to make sure that we touch on is the concept of functional medicine, right? Different than other practice, other areas of medicine. Functional medicine is just so interesting because I believe, as you put it, like you're really getting to the root of the problem, right? Like, why are you ill? It's not like, like, oh, I'm here. I'm telling you I have a headache and you're like, here, have some ibuprofen. You are going to ask about all of these other factors that play into why you may actually have a headache. So Mm -hmm. why did you decide that functional medicine was where it was at for you? Uh, I'm just, I think I have more of an engineering mind in that way where I want to get to the root cause of it. To me, it's like there's a time and place, like you mentioned, like the ibuprofen. If I have a headache, there's no shame in taking ibuprofen and NSAID, Oh, totally, right? yeah. But if somebody's like having headaches day in, day out, what's the sustainability of that? Like, is that going to be hard on your liver? Is it going to be hard on your digestive system? Well, yeah, chronic use of NSAIDs will do that. So ultimately, you don't, nobody has a headache, to use that example, from an uh, NSAID deficiency. So let's figure out, like, why we have the inflammation in the first place to go upstream or to get to the root of the problem. So to me, as a researcher, a problem solver, I just want to get to the, figure that out. And it's interesting, our top patient base at the telehealth center here, it's like our our top patient base are people, nurses, are are nurses profession-wise, are nurses, school teachers, and engineers. And I find that they have a whole, they have a common love of getting to the root cause of Excel spreadsheets, tracking data and like, let's figure out this problem and see for the teachers, it's let, let's improve our grade. <laughs> if we have a bad <laughs> lab, let's get that lab looking good. So I think it's this common love of saying like, look, the body's telling us something like what, let's figure this out. Like what's long-term, what's the solution here? Like maybe in the short term, we need that medication, but in the long term, like what, how do we deal with this? We don't have to be on this pill every day. Definitely. Definitely. All right. So segueing here into a conversation on the gut. I realized before we sat down today, and I literally can't believe that I'm saying this, I have never had someone on the show to talk about the gut. I've been doing this for four years, and it actually blows my mind that I'm kind of embarrassed to admit this. So just need to get that off of my chest. But what I will move forward and say is that it is obviously very important. It is something that I feel like we cannot escape from when it comes to the day-to-day news cycle. The buzziest articles, the buzziest topics are people talking about all things gut and how it interplays into every aspect of our life. So let's start there. Why is it important to prioritize the well-being of your gut? Well, I feel honored the fact that this is the (laughs) first conversation. I mean, I feel like this is good. And we're going to get way beyond the basics here. I mean, if people know about gut health, I'll touch on the basics. But like, I just (laughs) want, there's so much to talk about. Your gut and brain are formed from the same fetal tissue. So when babies are growing in their mother's womb, all of us, right, we were growing, our gut and brain are formed from that same tissue. And it's inextricably linked for the rest of our life through what's known in the research, in the scientific literature as the gut-brain axis or the connection between the gut and the brain. So if you think about it, the intestines kind of even even resemble the brain. So 95% of serotonin, shockingly, 95% of our happy neurotransmitter is made in the gut, stored in the gut. 50% of dopamine, our pleasure neurotransmitter, is made in the gut, stored in the gut. So there's a lot of far-reaching implications, both from a neurotransmitter production standpoint, but also 
the bacteria in our gut. We have upwards of 100 trillion bacteria known collectively as the microbiome, this sort of this microbiome metropolis, this, this gut garden that influences digestion, but also influences neurotransmitter, also influences how hormones are converted, like the thyroid hormone, and it converts uh, it, so many things in the body. So there, from the bacteria to the neurotransmitter production to 75% of the immune system is in originating in the gut. Inflammation is a product of the immune system. Just about every health problem under the sun is inflammatory in nature, from autoimmune problems, many hormone problems, metabolic issues, weight loss resistance, type 2 diabetes, to the biggest killers in our society, like heart disease and cancer, to, as I talk about in Gut Feelings, this field of research called the cytokine model of cognitive function. Cytokines are pro-inflammatory cells. It's research looking at how does inflammation impact how our brain works? How does inflammation impact mental health? And really having a conversation in the book, we like to separate in the West mental health from physical health, but in reality, mental health is physical health. Our brain is a part of our body just as much as anything else. So it's really a conversation of this gut feeling connection because it's one thing to say, well, inflammation is the commonality of, of these different health problems, but then it's the commonality. Ultimately, something's causing a dysregulation of the inflammation levels in the body because inflammation is inherently bad. It's a product of the immune system. It's meant to fight off viruses and kill off bacteria. But what's causing chronic inflammation? That's sort of that, that forest fire that's burning in perpetuity. That's the problem. That's the link between all of these health problems. So what is causing the inflammation? And that's really what I'm exploring in gut feelings, both the gut and the feelings, the physiological and the psychological, the physical stuff and the mental, emotional, spiritual stuff, both of these facets are what's causing the chronic inflammation that we are that's plugging our society today. And there's the, there's so much gut-centric components to all of that. So yes, it's way more than just going to the bathroom. Like going to the bathroom is important. Like having normal, what we say, like one to two snakes a day on the Bristol chart, like that's normal as far as you going to the bathroom, but it's so much more than that. It really has far reaching implications. Totally. And what you're getting at here and what we're going to continue to talk about is the fact that we're not just talking about like what you're putting into your system in terms of nutrition. We're also talking about your mental, emotional state, right? And how that interplays with how your gut functions, triggering that inflammation. Yes. Absolutely. So it's bi-directional and the physical stuff like underlying gut problems, nutrient deficiencies, like chronic uh, infections, like we see a lot of mold toxicity and chronic Lyme disease and environmental toxic toxicity, how these physiological things will impact our mood. It'll impact things like anxiety and depression, brain fog and fatigue. But then conversely, as you said, things like chronic stress and trauma and shame these things will impact our physical health. So for my patients with autoimmune inflammation issues, hormonal problems, metabolic issues, oftentimes we don't give that side of things, the feeling side of things. How can things like past unresolved trauma be impacting the way my metabolism's functioning, the way it impacted my digestion now? So it, it is the science is fascinating. It sounds like science fiction, but it's in fact being very well researched in the scientific literature and something that I got to write about in, in Gut Feelings. For someone that does really want to work on bettering their gut, on lessening that inflammation. I know in the book, you provide this framework for us to better understand the gut-brain connection and 
influence that connection for the better. So where does someone begin? Well, I mean, I think First of all, I think taking inventory of your health, I think is a good place to set start because many people don't really know there's a problem. Like it's just because something is there every day, they will normalize it for themselves. There's so much like self gaslighting that we do for ourselves where it's like, well, we compare ourselves to someone worse off than us. And that's not that bad. Like I, I, can, I could go to work. I can like do life. Uh, if my trauma, I don't my trauma is not bad compared to that person or my digestion, my health symptoms aren't as bad as that person. So I think first of all, just having a real conversation is not comparing yourself to other people, but just saying, am I feeling my best? Like, am I where I want to be? And I I think that's our comparison culture, this sort of FOMO culture we have anyways, of just like getting out of our own head and be in our bodies and just saying, where do we want to be? Be our own end of one experiment. And if we're at like, a five out of 10 energy, like let's be 10 out of 10 and not saying, well, yeah, technically you're five out of 10 to somebody else's, I mean, you can get a two out of 10 in energy too, but it's ultimately let's be the best version of you and taking inventory of things like your energy levels of your sleep, of your sex drive, of your metabolism, of your hair, your skin, your nails, all this stuff's important because we only have one life. So I think just being the best version of ourselves is as a worthy cause and and wanting to to live the best life you want to live. So that's step number one. And then step number two, I mean, that's why I wrote the book. So people to really be empowered, to have agency over their health. A lot of these things are free or low cost stuff that they can start integrating into their life. Um, And I put together a protocol in the book that's really just what are the top science-backed ways to support your gut and support your feelings the physiological and the mental and the psychological and um, lean into it. But, you know, if you're looking at the physical side, it starts with food. I, I One of the things that I talk about in the book is something called a GAPS protocol, which is an acronym, GAPS, G-A-P-S, that stands for gut and psychology syndrome or gut and physiology syndrome. So we use it for different brain health issues like brain fog, fatigue, anxiety, and depression, and gut and physiology syndrome physiologically, meaning inflammation largely, we deal with a lot of different autoimmune inflammation issues. So lots of soups and stews, and I give lots of recipes in the book for people to really kind of nourish their gut, nourish their second brain, nourish two thirds of their immune system of where inflammation's originating to calm, like a proverbial siesta for their gut to repair their gut and kind of reset their gut health in a positive way, which will not only improve their digestion, if that's a goal for them, but also the downstream cascade positive ripple effect you're going to have, i.e. improving your brain health, which communicates with your endocrine system, your hormones, which will also impact your systemic inflammation as well. So that's kind of a gut action item. And on a feeling side of it, we talk about things like somatic practices, which the research around that is just fascinating to me of how you could, through body movement, you can metabolize stored unresolved trauma and things and release things that maybe you didn't even know you need to release. And it's something that I talk about in the book, this concept of shame inflammation of how things like shame and stress and trauma, how does it impact your body and really clearing out that shame inflammation through different physical modalities. Yeah. And I feel as though someone hears this and their immediate question is, okay, moving my body can help me process things that otherwise would not have been processed. But in what capacity, right? Are you, or does the research say is 15 minutes a day? Okay. Is five minutes a day. Okay. Is walking. Okay. Or is this something that I really need to pour so much time into? 
Yeah, so I, that's a great question. I think consistency is key, but you don't have to be, and I actually think it's it, there's diminishing returns actually, because the more you, more isn't always better with this stuff. I think for most people in most cases, consistency with the simple stuff is important. So you don't have to be this aficionado biohacking person, which like I said, I talk a lot about that in the book where I think it can become the source of obsession. And I talk a lot about orthorexia, which is disordered eating around healthy foods. And I, it's in my opinion, yes, orthorexia is more strictly defined as disordered eating around healthy foods. But I think there's this orthorexic umbrella within the wellness community where people can be obsessive about anything within wellness, about exercise, about all the biohacking stuff they're seeing on Instagram, like ultimately shaming your way and obsessing your way into wellness is antithetical to sustainable wellness. So I, I would say I would not advise people to spend hours on this stuff because I think it's keeping it simple and being consistent with the simple things that are light to you, meaning things that are like actually you enjoy and you can stay consistent with it and it's sustainable for you is where the sustainable results come from because if, it, if it's too much if like the barrier to entry is so high and you can grit your teeth and like gruelingly put hours into your wellness every day it's probably going to be unsustainable but even right. if it is sustainable it'll be such a source of dread and negativity and like obsession that it will counteract like any potential benefits hypothetically that come along with it because i say in the book, you can't heal a body you hate. You cannot shame your way into wellness. So stressing about healthy foods is not good for your health. Stressing about cold plunges and sonnets or whatever like biohacking thing you read online isn't good for your health. So uh, I answer your question more pointedly. I would say most of the action items I talk about in the book are about 15 minutes. If that 15, 30 minutes, it's really nothing long. Yeah. And I also love like the, the point that you're driving home about focusing on your own journey and not comparing it to that of whomever you may be scrolling by on the internet, right? Because what feels good for you in your body, paying attention to that is just so important compared to just doing something because you feel as though you're supposed to be doing it. Absolutely. It is so true. And, and, and also what serves you today or what is light to you today isn't necessarily what you always have to do. So it's another message in the book. It's like, it's okay to pivot. It's okay to evolve. It's okay to self-experiment. And your tools within your wellness toolbox should evolve over time. And you may pick some other things up as you learn more. You may take some things out because they served you for a season, but not anymore. So I think that's another source of shame inflammation. Many people find themselves too. They may think, oh, I eat this certain way. And like it becomes an identity. But then like I see a lot of this with vegans and vegetarians and even keto people and like these carnivore people, like it's like their identity is in this sort of food tribalism, which I really go hard at in the book to just say like, that's not necessarily the healthiest way to be defined. And it's okay to pivot and evolve and just like learn over time. And there's so much health related shame when it comes to food and people's body that is just, again, very counterproductive when you're talking about sustainable wellness. So I know we started off talking about the mind gut connection. We talked about what you referenced to be, I believe the word is shame inflammation, <laughs> beyond yeah. shame inflammation and the way that we're talking to ourselves. Talk to me a little bit about how mindfulness can actually also be beneficial when it comes to taking care of our gut health. Wow, it's huge. I mean, it, these are like I talk in the book about like feeding your gut 
brain axis, but also feeding your head and your heart? Like, how can you feed both the physiological and the psychological and really realize that I call them metaphysical meals. Like these things we're serving our head and our heart are just as influential on our physiology, i.e. our physical health, as the breakfast, lunch, and dinner and snacks that you're having. Yeah. But it's a lot more nebulous because it's very black and white and, and prescriptive for me to say, okay, these foods are going to disrupt your microbiome. You're going to have like decrease those. These foods are going to love you back, like focus on the things that love you back. It's very, very linear. But the side of the feeling side of gut feelings is a lot more ambiguous in the sense of it's a lot more complex to unpack where it's, you can't tell somebody don't stress. And then they, you know, stress about not stressing, or you can't tell them not to have the shame or just drop that trauma. Like it doesn't work that way. Sadly, it's not a, not a thing. So it's, it, but I want, I really wanted to really tackle these complex issues because I see them being linchpins to people reclaiming their health. So it is, um, something that needs to be addressed and shame inflammation is just a massive a massive problem and there's so much shame around different things like unresolved trauma massive problem with shame so people have so much shame about it they don't want to talk it they can get talk about it they can get defensive about it they don't know where to start to to even deal with it or address it and that's manifesting in their health. And the science is very, very clear that they, one of the things we ask patients to fill out and we talk about it during the initial telehealth consult is an ACE score, an adverse childhood experience score. So we're talking about very sensitive, deep things like sexual trauma growing up, physical abuse growing up, neglect growing up, and uh, so much heavy stuff like that. And the higher the ACE score research shows later on in life, we're more likely to have triggered autoimmune inflammation issues or metabolic issues, trouble losing weight or energy issues, chronic fatigue syndrome, um, and hypervigilant nervous system, anxiety, depression, etc. So how do we take that and just start that shame inflammation that's manifesting in your health today, but it's from stuff in the past, how do we start to shift our immune system, i.e. lowering inflammation and our nervous system shifting it into more of a parasympathetic, resting, digesting, hormone balanced state. So that, that's shame inflammation in action. It's around trauma, but it's also around chronic stress. I think I see a lot of people that in our hustle culture and you know, burnout is this you know badge of honor that's sort of deified. When people are chronically stressed to varying degrees, they can feel a lot of shame because they're not the good enough partner because they're not there. They're they're snapping at their kids. They're just irritable. They're not making the right food choices for them. They're eating foods that don't love them back because it's it's the, not like going for the easy, quick, convenient stuff. There's a lot of body and health related shame too. So shame inflammation is a massive part of they talk about in the book, and it's complex. But I really show in the book like what I've seen with patients be the most effective tools to sort of decrease that shame inflammation by increasing things that I call acts of stillness. Like what are the things that are supportive of lowering inflammation and increasing the parasympathetic aspect of the autonomic nervous system? Like self-compassion is a good example. Like self-compassion is the antithesis of shame. So research shows that people that have the most stress and shame, they have the highest in interleukin-6 levels. Like these are inflammatory levels. But people that have the highest self-compassion scores, they have the lowest amount of inflammation levels. So simple practices of consistent daily, not too much, not you don't have to like live in an ashram and 
middle of nowhere, you can really just cultivate practical, sustainable self-compassion tools to lower inflammation levels to counteract that problem. If you were to recommend any sort of uh, a gateway, perhaps, into a mindfulness or a meditation practice, where would you land? So I think self-compassion, I I don't know if you could classify that as meditation. I think it is because it's getting you out of your head and into your body. So it's a meditation tool. Loving kindness meditation, I guess, would would be a type of meditation that would fall under that category of cultivating self-compassion towards yourself, but also compassion for other people in our world. So that's a great entry point, but people's entry point is going to look different. And I gave, give people about 21 different feeling action items that include different meditations, practices that are shown in the research to help the shame inflammation response, to calm inflammation levels in the body, to shift our nervous system and how we think about ourselves. Um, breath work is another one. I think breath work can be an entry point. But here's the thing. Some people will say, well, meditation's not for me, right? It's like, I'm not a good meditator. Meditation's not for me. Normally, the people that say that are the people that need to do it the most. Like their body's so stuck in that fight or flight stress state that it's very uncomfortable to not be in your thoughts. So you want to be in this ruminating thoughts all day long. And that mindfulness muscle is weak. So it would be like me going, never going to the gym. Let's say I never went to the gym and I would just go to the gym once and I wasn't good at it. And I'd say, oh, the gym's not for me. You know, that's, Mm -hmm. it's just, it's not the gym's fault. It's my weak muscles that are the fault. And I have to train them. Many people's nervous system so dysregulated that it's that parasympathetic nervous system is weak. So they need to flex that parasympathetic, which is going to take time. Meditation is literally, it's vagal nerve workout. And people's vagal nerve, which is the largest cranial nerve in the body, is responsible for the parasympathetic nervous system largely, which is the resting, digesting, hormone balance, like Zendow, I feel chilled and regulated mechanism of our autonomic nervous system. So, but the the question is, what's the best type of meditation? The one that's consistent, you can be consistent with. That's the best type of meditation. So it's for some people, it's going to be, you know, box breathing. That's going to be anchoring yourself in the present moment and getting you out of your head and in your body. For the next person, it could be a body scan or present moment awareness or, you know, Eckhart Tolle talks about inner body awareness or it could be breath work. I talk about holotropic breath work, which is, it came out of the research of psychedelics and it's just amazing science around that of kind of metabolizing stored trauma or something like Shinrin Yoku. It's using nature as a meditation. The research out of Japan and South Korea are really just taking in nature as a sort of sensorial medicine, if you will, and a meditation to calm inflammation, to regulate the nervous system. So that's why I mean, it's like when I give people all of these tools, I'm not saying you have to do all of the tools, but I want you to experiment with these different things at least once to say, how did this make me feel? Did this resonate with me? Was it not my jam? There's no shame if it wasn't your jam because you can have other tools to help strengthen that vagus nerve. Yeah, yeah, I love that. There's no shame if it's not your jam. You have to have the awareness to have the grace with yourself so that you can then move forward and find the tool that does feel like it's your jam. Now, I would be remiss. I know they want to know. We talked about the term foods that love you back. So Dr. Cole... Just give us a few. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, food tribalism, this diet toxic tribalism that's happening in our culture today between 
what I would call toxic diet culture. And then on the other side, toxic anti-diet culture, where one side is saying, basically, you shame your way into wellness, eat less, work out more, it's restriction culture. And then the other side is like the polar opposite rebound response that says there's no such thing as a bad food, eat whatever you want. And there, it's, it's all in the name of body positivity. And I would say both are really falling short and causing a lot of food confusion out there. Because the fact is clinical nutrition is still a thing. And there's going to be still some foods that mess up your blood sugar, that raise inflammation, that impact your digestion negatively, that make you brain fog and fatigue. And avoiding those foods isn't restrictive. It's self-respect. So it's really talking about this. I, I, the analogy that I use in the book is equating Food, people's relationship with food is almost like a, a, a relationship with like another human being. Like it's a very personal, intimate thing, right? And what's our coping mechanisms with food? What's our relationship with food and our body? And continuing to eat foods that don't love you back is like staying in this toxic relationship and wondering why you're still freaking miserable. But avoiding them, as I said, foods that don't love you back is a form of self-respect. But there's a lot of bioindividuality with this conversation. So there is a lot of nuance. There is a lot of like, okay, just because something's healthy, what works for one person may not, may not be right for me. That is where we're losing it because it's, there's a lot of gray areas and all of these things exist on a spectrum. That's what I look at all day long on labs. Like what works for one person may not be right for you. So there's a lot of uniqueness between all of us. And Ultimately, if we all ate the same way and worked out the same way and did all the wellnessy stuff the same way, we still would all look different. And that's okay. I want you to be the best version of you and me to be the best version of me. And we're all going to be different sizes and we're all going to look different. So to answer your question, like what foods don't love you back, part of it is look just being self-experimenting how you feel when you eat foods, I call it food peace. It's like still acknowledging the fact that some foods are not good for any human being, but ultimately being your own end of one experiment and seeing what your body loves and what your body hates and using meals as a meditation and a medicine. So if you eat that food and it made you feel like crap, you can take use it as a meditation. Maybe it was worth it. Maybe you were hanging out with your friends and you ate it and it was like, yeah, but that was worth it. I was hanging out with them and I had a fun time. Then drop it. Like shame is worse than any junk food, but mm. you may use it as a meditation and say, you know what? I'm not going to do that next time. You're going to grow in awareness, body awareness for next time to say, no, I would rather feel great, hang out with my friends, but I don't want to eat things that make me feel good. Like I'd rather feel great more than I thought I wanted that food. And it's like a bad trade-off. So this is yeah. sort of the paradigm shift of food piece that I think is just paramount for sustainable wellness. Cause it's not this list of do's and don'ts of like, Oh, I can't have that. As I say in the book, eat whatever you want, but start to grow an awareness of using meals as a meditation. But that said, there's some th foods that are going to pretty much impact everybody negatively to differing degrees because of bioindividuality. But like looking at the amount of sugar you're consuming in a day is a good idea for everybody. Some people can have more than others because of bioindividuality, but being mindful of how many grams of added sugar you're consuming in a day, it's going to mess up your mood. It's going to mess up your digestion. It's going to raise your inflammation. It's going to show up in your face for some people in the form of breakouts. But again, decreasing that isn't restrictive. It's like, no, I, I like feeling better. Let's like, let's find some better alternatives that love me back. 
so I can still enjoy my food, but not be uh, like paying for it the next day. Right. And I feel that so often we hear such an emphasis on fermented foods. You know, you go to any buzzy clickbait article online, you want to read about what's good for your gut. You're going to hear all about kefir and kimchi and sauerkraut and so on and so forth. And so my question for you as someone who is knee deep in this work is truly if someone was to eat all of these foods could they be making a major mistake? Are they just being led astray by these publications? Yeah, yeah. the answer is yes. I don't want to, <laughs> I talk about it in the book a little bit. I don't want to create like fear around this, but look, I'm used to a lot of bioindividuality and for every healthy food under the sun, I can find, I can think of 10 patients or more than that. What I mean is like for every 10 patients that it worked, 10 patients that it didn't. There's a lot right. of bioindividuality with this. Yes, a decreasing sugar is a good idea. Increasing things like a, a complete protein. Make sure you're optimizing protein, which is the raw materials for your neurotransmitters, like your serotonin, your dopamine, your acetylcholine, your GABA. Yeah, that's good. Healthy fats are a good idea to support your brain health and your hormone health and your cellular health. Like there's some um, low hanging fruit, so to speak. I mean, speaking of fruits, like that, fruits are another thing, like antioxidant rich fruits are a really good idea. Eating fiber-rich foods for your gut microbiome, good idea. But you talk about, I mean, let's just call out the probiotic foods. I think they're wonderful for many people. I talk about them in the book as a tool, but there are some people that are, and I, we see this growing, uh, growing problem, just as we're seeing growing more complex autoimmune issues and food sensitivity issues and these sort of like reactions, right? That one... Uh, whatever the classic conventional advice on the clickbaity article about like gut health, for example, or anything else, they're not having good responses from it. So probiotic rich foods are strong modulators of the immune system, right? Because they're probiotic rich, they have bacteria in them, and they're fermented because of that. So fermented foods are higher in histamines. So something that I see clinically a lot is that people overdo these fermented foods. It actually can feel worse. It can increase things like brain fog, digestive problems, things like migraines, because more isn't always better. So I would just say be judicious with these things. They're good things to bring in. I think generally speaking, people need more fermented foods in their body, but bioindividuality, I guess is what I'm trying yeah. to say. That if, yeah. you, if you eat, have, a, have a food that's like you read in a clickbaity article and you're like, dang, like this doesn't work for me. What's wrong? Maybe try having less or don't try something else. Like it doesn't yeah. mean just because you read it in an article, you need to be having so much of it. Totally. And like, listen, you don't need to convince me on bioindividuality. I feel like especially as I get older, I'm like trying to get even more and more dialed in to what's working for me and my body and understanding that um, the way that my body feels and is now is just so different than when I was in, you know, my early 20s versus my mid 30s, right? Plus, which is why tools for me, like I do regular inside tracker panels, and they're so helpful for me to gain an understanding of, where I'm at, what my levels are, and then also the recommendations, honestly, on what I should be incorporating more of, because that is information that is specific to me and not something that I just like scrolled through on Google. Exactly. I think, but I love direct to consumer um, labs like Inside Track or two, because even 
well, A, I, I when initial consultations, I love when they already have this data because we have like something to talk about on the labs. Totally. But he, I, I love them because you don't even need a functional medicine doctor many times. Like I want people to have agency over their health on their own. And maybe they'll, maybe they'll need a functional medicine doctor at some point in their life, but many people don't. And they're just looking to optimize how they feel. And you can get your own real-time data on, on information like that. And uh, yeah, people behind these labs like Inside Tractor, he's super smart. And, and all these other people that are sort of harnessing tech and data. So you kind of get the gatekeeper out of the way. I think the decentralization of healthcare is so important because this is our body, right? Yeah, snaps to that. Well, I'm so excited and happy that we were able to make some time here. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you before you go, is there any like nugget of wisdom that you want to leave us with so that we feel just more excited and encouraged to take care of our overall health, our gut health moving forward? Uh, it's, it's in the... It's a ma massive mantra in our clinic. It, it's on the back of the book, actually. And it says, you can't heal a body you hate. And I think that's something that I want to leave people with is that ultimately all of the stuff I'm talking about, whether it's the GAPS protocol or it's different, you know, breathing or meditation practices, all of this should be predicated on using self-care as a form of self-respect. And I think a lot of this stuff can be abused if it's not coming in with an intention of saying, how can I nourish myself? So I think that that's the paradigm shift. It's part of that food piece concept that I talked about earlier that I think goes a long way because it will be sustainable for you. It'll be a source of enjoyment. There'll be a grace. There'll be a lightness to all of this instead of this sort of arduous, arduous punitive thing that you're trying to grit your teeth through. Thing. Well, Dr. Will Cole, I'm so happy that we were able to do this today again. Uh, for those that aren't following along with you just yet, give us your info. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, everything's at drwillcole.com. Um, the telehealth center, the patient options are there. The links to gut feelings are there. You can order gut feelings on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, all independent bookstores, all everywhere books are sold. And The Art of Being Well, a podcast uh, links are there as well. Thank you so much. Amazing, amazing. I'm going to make sure to link to the book as well for pre-orders in the show notes. I'm over at Emily Abadi at Hurdle Podcast. Another hurdle conquered. Catch you guys next time. Mm -hmm.